Hey, good morning, Faith Family. I want to say hello to those gathered in Lakeville and our venue as well. If you got your Bibles, uh, go to Luke chapter 15. Luke 15 is going to be our passage we're continuing in our uh, Grace Parade series. While you're turning there, uh, let me uh, give you a very, very important uh, and awesome announcement. You know, if you've been around Berean for the last several months, you know that all the growth that's been taking place, uh, launching our Lakeville campus, expanding at our Burnsville campus, uh, even looking to launch more campuses in the future as we've grown. And so uh, we, as the elders, have really felt uh, some tension in the area of needing some other leaders as a part of our main leadership team and pastoral team. And so uh, we, we started a search really looking for somebody that could help oversee our multi-site strategy, uh, kind of take over the Institute of Gospel Growth, which is uh, our way of trying to equip you in the Word and, and offer courses and classes uh, that, will, uh, that will teach us the truth of the gospel, and several other things that we were seeing in our faith family needed attention. And so um, the elders searched, and we found somebody that we felt like would be a great fit uh, for us to be a part of our leadership team. In fact, he's not a stranger uh, to you. Some of you may remember back last summer, a man by the name of Tony. Manning uh, that was here preaching. It's always funny when they do a still shot of you preaching, makes for great photos, all right? But Tony was actually here and he preached for us and that kind of uh, started up a conversation uh, and we just really felt like uh, that Tony was the right pastor to come and to serve on our team. And uh, so his family have accepted the call that the elders presented to him and uh, uh, he will be preaching. I've asked him to preach next weekend because I want you to hear his heart. I want you to be able to be exposed to him. He's going to be a critical part of our leadership team. And you can meet his family at the Faith Family Celebration. So there's another reason to meet that crazy bunch, uh, to come to the Faith Family Celebration and meet them. Welcome that family into our Faith Family, okay? So next week, yeah, that's awesome. Praise God. We are, we are grateful to have Tony on our team. And so uh, come next week, and uh, he will preach uh, for us. And then we'll be back in the Grace Parade two weeks from today. All right, Luke chapter 15. We've been in a series looking at the radical grace of God. And we're going to look this morning at a story that you are probably very familiar with. Uh, and yet, you can't talk about the Grace Parade without looking at this parable. Uh, in fact, I feel this morning like packing for vacation. Uh, any of you pack where you stuff so much things into your suitcase, you've got to stand on top of it just to get the zipper closed, right? Well, this story is so packed full of some amazing truth. And so we got a lot of ground to cover over the next three hours. Luke chapter 15, why are you laughing? All right, Luke 15, if you're able to stand in all of our locations, please do. Luke 15 verse 11. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property on reckless living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be uh, called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what do these things mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, and you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, you devoured, you devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we ask God to teach us again today about his grace. Father, we bow um, and we pray because prayer is an act of desperation for you. And we are desperate for you. Come talk to us. Holy Spirit, come through the word and open our eyes to see ourselves for who we are and the beauty of this grace parade, the beauty of a father's love. We pray all to the glory of Jesus and for his sake alone. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If I try to bend that far, I'll break. You may remember the line. It's one of the famous lines from the musical Fiddler on the Roof. I'm not much for musicals, but this is actually one that I really did enjoy. It's a story about a man named Tevya. He's a Jewish farmer living with his wife and five daughters in a Ukrainian village. Uh, Tevi is the kind of guy that follows the rules, and he expects his family to do it also. After all, tradition is what keeps life in balance. And you need to understand that in an ancient Jewish family, keeping tradition was one of the ways that you would show honor to somebody. And the last thing you would want to do in that culture is bring shame on the family's name. 
And of course, that becomes the tension of the story. For instance, one of Tevia's daughters pledges her love to a man after he had already promised her to somebody else. And Tevia is shamed. And then a second daughter, she pledges her love to somebody and doesn't even ask permission or ask advice from her father. And once again, Tevia is shamed. And then most devastating of all, the third daughter comes to Tevya and lets him know that she has pledged to be married to, of all things, a Gentile. This is the bottom of the barrel. It violates everything Tevya stood for, everything his family valued, everything in his Jewish culture. It was unthinkable to him that she could love, much less marry, somebody like that. It was a shame Tevya was not willing to bear. Shame. Have you ever felt it? Have you ever been shamed by someone? Maybe like Tevia, your kids did something that shamed you and humiliated you as a parent. Maybe a coworker that you stood up for, you defended them when nobody else would and they embarrassed you. You loved somebody with all your heart and they did not love you in return. Or maybe you felt like you brought shame upon yourself. Yours was the only marriage in your family that ended in divorce. You never lived up to the expectations of your parents. Heck, you never even lived up to your own expectations. Shame. That feeling of being humiliated. You do understand, faith family, that in most cultures, both historically and even today, the worst thing you can possibly do is shame yourself or someone else. And yet it's exactly what Jesus is doing to himself in Luke chapter 15. It is so important that we go back to verses 1 and 2 for us to understand the story that we just read. This context is king into understanding the parable. Notice, for instance, in Luke 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, that context is important, and here's why. You need to understand that in the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus is doing something shameful, disgraceful, humiliating. He's shaming his ministry. He's shaming the Jewish people. More than that, he's shaming the law. Why? Because he receives sinners like this. I mean, it's one thing that he does miracles on the Sabbath. It's one thing that his teaching's a little off in their eyes. But this is too much. If they bend this far, they'll break. And it's out of this that Jesus shares three parables. We're only going to look at one this morning, but I will come back at the end and show you how all three are needed to get the main point. What we're going to do is just look at the parable of the prodigal son. Now, it's a rather unfortunate name, for one reason is because there's more than one son. There's two sons, and they're both prodigals. 
And not only that, the main character of the story is not even the sons. It's the father. But we'll get to that. Notice how the parable starts. It is why I've talked so much about shame. Because the story starts with a shameful rebellion. Verse 11. Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property that, and he divided his property between them. Now, uh, the younger son basically starts and asks for his inheritance now. He wants his dad to divide up the property. That's something that would normally not happen until after he died. Now, you've got to understand, I'm going to try my best this morning to take you back into an ancient Near Eastern mindset so that you'll understand the story the way it would have been received when it was originally told. This is a shameful act. It's disgraceful for at least three reasons. Number one, it disrespected the family order. Many of you probably know that in the ancient Near East, the older son gets the inheritance. You start there before anybody gets anything. And younger brothers might get a third. If there were multiple younger brothers, you'd have to divide up that third. In other words, this is not his request to make, and the fact that he makes this request disrespects the family structure. Number two, it devalues the family land. You, you don't, back in the ancient Near East, you don't have 401ks and you don't have bank accounts. You have cattle. You have land. That's your wealth. In other words, for the father to sell some of the property and give it now makes him go down in social status. Number three, and probably the worst of all, it disgraces the father's name. This is the equivalent of saying, I want out of this family. I don't want to live here anymore. I don't want to be under your authority. In fact, if you really want to know what I think, I wish you were dead. This is, don't forget the context, law-breaking 101. Because what is one of the Ten Commandments? Say it with me, Lakeville Venue. Honor your father and mother. So when the Pharisees are hearing this story, they're saying, oh... Lawbreaker. This is shameful. This rebellion against the name of a father. But it gets worse. Verse 13. Now, many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. There he squandered his property in reckless living. Well, now the shame gets even worse. You, you, you need to see these verses as a downward spiral. It's usually where rebellion takes you. It starts with a shameful request. Now he's shaming the father by his reckless living. In other words, translation, his law-breaking continues. And this guy is partying it up. He is partying like it's 1999. He doesn't care about anybody. He doesn't care about anything. All he cares about is having fun and the pleasures of the world. And to the Pharisees, once more, this is another level of shame. Do you realize the dishonor you are bringing to your father for being that bad of a dancer, right? (laughs) To live this way so recklessly, it's shaming dad. And it gets worse. Look at verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, 
And he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, quick little footnote. This doesn't count against my time. All right, it's totally for free. Listen, famines usually follow reckless living. You think about that. Famines usually follow reckless living. But now what would have an ancient Near Eastern mind thought as this story progresses to this point? Well, to the Jewish mindset, it's the lowest of lows. Follow the progression. Shameful request and asking for the inheritance. Reckless living shames the father's name even more. And now this son is relating to the unclean. He's in a foreign land with foreign people eating with pigs. Nothing. Not a thing. See? Because when we think of pigs, we think petting zoo (laughs) and farm animals. Uh, You may be like one of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, who loves pigs. Here's what he says. The pig is an amazing animal. You feed it an apple, essentially garbage, and it makes bacon. (laughs) That's magic. Or the most successful recycling program ever. Like, bacon's the best. Even the frying of bacon sounds like applause. Uh, Seriously, you can't tell me that the success of Kevin Bacon isn't somehow related to his name. See, I say pigs, and you're like, bacon, right? I mean, that... It's like nothing. We sit here in our culture and we don't feel a thing. But according to the Old Testament, pigs are unclean. You don't touch them. You don't get around them. I'm trying to get you emotionally involved in this text. The Pharisees' reaction at this point in the story is this. They are disgusted. They want to throw up. They are ready to vomit on the ground. If, if there was ever a sinner, this is him. Look at the request he made. Look at the recklessness in which he lives. Look at who he's relating to. Do you see the context? Question. Who is this the description of? Answer. The sinner... And chapter 15, verse 1. Question 2. What is this a description of? Answer, their sin. Jesus has just painted in story form a picture of what sin is. I'll recap it. Sin is dishonoring God. Sin is wanting your independence from God. Sin is running from God. Listen, faith family, sin is taking all that which God has given you, your life, your talents, your money, and wasting them on yourself. Sin is reckless living. Sin is idolatry where you want the things from God, but you don't want God. Sin is simply wanting to run your own life. Which means this. 
This is very important to point out at this stage. Jesus may be a friend of sinners, but he's not soft on sin. Please don't misinterpret that because Jesus has just described the sinner in the most horrific way to an ancient Near Eastern mindset. Are you with me? That's act one. This shameful rebellion of the son. By now, act two, we see this sorrowful repentance. Uh, if they, those verses were ugly, these verses are beautiful. Notice how the younger son responds. Verse 17. But you should underline this. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now, basically what you have here is uh, a repentant person. He is repenting over the sin, over the shame that he has done. I'm going to give you, don't get nervous, seven things. Don't get nervous. Um, seven things that the younger son does that shows us what, listen, true biblical repentance is. Seven things that he does. Number one, we see here that the younger son, as a picture of repentance, sees his sin for what it is. The text says he came to his senses. In other words, he realized who he was. He realized what he'd done. He realized how far he'd fallen. He came to his senses, was honest about his life. Repentance starts by calling sin what it is. This is what I've done. And notice secondly, not only does he acknowledge what it is, but he's humbled by it. He's broken over that the text says, I am not worthy to be called a son. Do you remember last week? Well, that makes me feel good. All right. Uh, <laughs> the sermon that we talked about, the Beatitudes, right? Uh, this is a perfect picture of that. How, how did the Beatitudes start? Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, getting in the kingdom starts with realizing that you got nothing. You're bankrupt. You're a beggar. And then what does that lead to next? Uh, blessed are those who mourn. And then blessed are the meek, that is the humble. You're seeing a picture of it right here. This son sees his poverty of spirit, and now he's humbled by it. Like, I'm not worthy to be a son. I don't, I don't deserve anything. I'm a beggar in need of grace. Number three. He gets specific about his sin. The text says, against you and heaven have I sinned. Uh, right here, faith family, Lakeville venue, everybody. Is it not true that in our culture, this tends to be how people apologize? You know, if I did anything that offended you, I'm sorry. <laughs> Is that not right? Am I right or am I right? I'm right, okay? If I did anything that offended you, I'm sorry. Or you know what, Dad? I, I made a mistake, but you know what? All sons make mistakes. It tends to be very generic. That's not repentance. This son says, Dad, I have sinned against you. I have shamed your name, and I have broken your heart. Because true repentance names names. 
It gets specific. This is what I've done. Number four, repentance trusts in the goodness of God. The text says, how many of my father's servants have more than enough bread? In other words, he starts thinking to myself, what do I know about dad? What do I know about my father? I know that there are people working back at the property that ought to be living for daily bread. They ought to be wondering, will I have food tomorrow? But you know what? They don't. They've got more than enough. Do you know why? Because he's a good, good dad. Because he's a gracious father. And he begins to trust in that goodness. This is why uh, faith and repentance always go together. Watch. Turning involves trusting. And trusting requires turning. Part of seeing sin for what it is means I am turning and trusting in the goodness of my heavenly Abba. Number five. Repentance doesn't expect anything. The son says in the text, treat me as a hired servant. He doesn't walk back in expecting his old job back. He doesn't walk in expecting to be treated as a son. He says, no, what what I expect, you can just treat me as a slave. Why? Because a repentant person expects justice and is shocked at grace. Man, this is like this is a whole sermon our culture needs in our culture of entitlement. Right? It, well, the, I just I expect the grace of dad, so I'm just gonna walk back in and say, well, you know, is my seat still warm? No. He knows his father doesn't owe him a thing. Because grace, the moment you expect it, you've just proven you don't understand it. Grace is an undeserved gift from an unobligated giver. This son doesn't expect to be treated like a son. Number six, repentance is going to the father. He says, I will arise and go to my father. In other words, the object of biblical repentance is God, this is so important. Okay, we don't have much time. Let me say it quickly. It's very easy to think we're repenting when we say, um, uh, I hate what I'm doing. I don't want to do it anymore. I want to change so that I can be a better dad for my kids. I hate what I'm doing. I don't want to do it anymore so that I can be a better Christian for God. My dear friend, you haven't turned to God. You've turned to you. The object of your repentance is your goodness, not God. The son doesn't turn and go back to say, I'm going to go back and be a better son. He goes back to the father. The object of his turning is going to dad. Repentant people don't want to be better. Repentant people want God. And lastly, repentance is immediate. And the text just says he arose and went. He doesn't say, you know, I'll wait till I'm older. I'll find a more appropriate time. You know, there's football on. There's something happening this afternoon with the family. You know what I'll do? I'll start a business and I'll make some money and then I'll go and pay dad back. No! 
Repentance is the immediate response of coming to your senses about the nature of your sin. There is no more opportune time than now. That's true repentance. It's beautiful. And I will say this to you, faith family. Whatever path of sin you've gone down, the only road back is repentance. I don't give a rip about your goodness. I'm not impressed whatsoever about what you think you can do to be better. The road back home is a road of a beggar repenting and pleading for grace. Act three. We move now from the shameful rebellion and the sorrowful repentance to the third act, which is a scandalous reception. Oh man, this is the most radical part of the story. Are y'all having fun? I'm having a blast. (laughs) This is radical. It's why, uh, faith family, I've tried so hard this morning to keep your mindset thinking about cultures of honor and shame. That's why I started with Fiddler on the Roof. I wanted you to get that, that idea that shame in this culture is everything. If you're listening to this story when Jesus is telling it, you already know what's going to happen. You do. You know how this story ends. The son comes back and he gets scorned. The doors are locked. His face is slapped. His father doesn't speak to him. And the entire community mocks him. And if you don't believe that's true, you just ask somebody that was a Muslim who converted to Christianity, but parents are still Muslim, and ask how they, their parents relate to them. Or I'll just tell you from a couple weeks ago when I was in China, when I looked into the eyes and heard from the mouth of Chinese college students that said, because I'm a Christian, Christian, I can't go home. My parents won't even talk to me because I have shamed the family because of my faith in Jesus Christ. That is what is expected here, which makes the response so scandalous. Verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against uh, heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father interrupts before he can finish his pre-recorded message. He says to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him. Bring a, a ring, put it on his hand. Shoes, put them on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it, let's party. Because this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's scandalous. Oh, I just want to be a fly on the wall and see the Pharisee's face at that point of the story. There is no ancient Near Eastern father who runs. They don't do this. This is not how you respond. It's radical. This father identifies with his son. He embraces him. Think about it this way. Even though the son caused his father to lose face, his father responds by kissing his son on the face. What an image. 
you caused me to lose face. Here's my response. All over your face, I'm embracing you, son. He identifies with this pig-smelling, reckless, living child, which brings shame upon himself. And do you remember the whole context? How can you eat with sinners? How can you identify with people like that? Some of you may remember the name Woody Hayes college football coach for Ohio State. Any Buckeye fans? Good. All right. (laughs) They're obnoxious anyways. All right. He was a very successful coach. His career ended in controversy. Uh, He was playing in the 19 or Ohio State was playing Clemson in the uh, 1978 Gator Bowl. And a player from Clemson, the opposing team, caught the ball interception and was running it out of bounds, and the coach, Woody Hayes, attacked the opposing player on national television. He was disgraced, forced to resign. He was the shame of the coaching community. Until one day, another coach by the name of Tom Landry coach of the Dallas Cowboys, high character, highly regarded, very respected in the coaching community, was asked to come and speak at a prestigious banquet in New York, and he was given the opportunity to bring a guest, and of course, he would normally bring his wife. Not on this day. He brought with him Woody Hayes. You could cut the tension with a knife when he walked in the room with Landry and sat in the seat of a guest. And they asked Landry afterwards, why? Why why would you do that? Here's what he said. Quote, I figured since everybody was beating up on him, somebody needed to show him that he still loved. He was willing to identify with the shamed. That's what the father does. But he doesn't just identify with his shamed son. He reconciles with him. Shoes, put it on him. Ring, put it on him. Robe, put it on him. In other words, he's treating him like a son. He's restored. He's reconciled, and thirdly, he celebrates his son. The father throws a party, and he celebrates that his son has come home. And everybody's rejoicing. The balloons are falling. There's streamers up. The band is playing, and everybody's having a great old time. Except one. Verse 25. This is Act 4. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. He he called one of the servants and asked, what what does this mean? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. And he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him, but answered his father, look, 
These many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, and you've never given me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But yeah, when this son of yours came, he won't even identify with who he is. He won't even mention his name. The one, you know the one that devoured your property with prostitutes? You killed the fattened calf for him. The older son's not happy. Oh, my brother's back. I've missed him. Can't wait to see him. He's angry. He's fuming mad. You see, if the younger brother is the one that broke all the rules, the older brother is the one who's trying to keep all the rules. He's the goody-goody. He's the one that stays home and does it right. Now, my friend, it doesn't take a PhD in theology to realize what Jesus is doing here. He's just put the Pharisees in the story. If the younger son is chapter 15, verse 1, the older son is chapter 15, verse 2. The Pharisees are now in the story. Why? Because their response to Jesus is the same response of the older brother to the father. It looks like this. They are pouting. They are angry. They're upset. It's not fair that you would do something like this. And yet what they don't even understand, oh, you got to get this. If you've zoned out, zone back in. What the older brother doesn't understand is he has shamed the father as well. For the younger son took advantage of the father's goodness, but the younger son questioned the father's goodness. You never did this for me. What kind of father are you? The younger son shames the father by running away. The older son shames the father by refusing to go in. He denied his father's party. It's disgraceful. Thirdly, the younger son is only concerned about what the father can give him. The older son is only concerned about what the father owes him. Look at everything I've done and I don't even get a goat. You owe me, dad. And lastly, the younger son wished his father dead. The older son killed his father. I don't... Is this like the West version? Like, did you make that up? No, I just know the book of Acts. You see, the older brothers, the Pharisees. And who crucifies Jesus? The Pharisees. You can shame dad through your immorality or through your morality. You can run from home and never leave. Because some of you have sinned by running with your feet. Some of you have sinned by running with your heart. Both shame the Father. That's the story. Isn't it awesome? But what do we learn? Five things. Five things? What? <laughs> Can't be five things. Five things. We'll hit them quickly. The first four are minor. 
The last one's the major point. I'm going to go fast. Put your seatbelt on. What do we learn? Number one, we learn about the kingdom's reception. Faith family, Lakeville venue, everybody, who gets in the celebration? The younger son or the older? The younger. In other words, who gets the kingdom of God? Answer, the beggar, the repentant, the outcast, the reject, the person that has come to their point and repented over their sin. Get it right. The grace parade is for prodigals. Not for older brothers who think they have no issues. That's the kingdom's reception. Secondly, a sinner's repentance. I just want to say this. I I say this often in this faith family. I'll continue to. We see repentance as shameful. God sees repentance as beautiful. So why has it been so long since you've repented? You say, well, I'm pretty moral. I know. Older brothers need to repent too. You say, but I'm too immoral. Younger sons can come home. It's for both. Repentance is where you meet grace. Three, the danger of religion. You knew I'd go there. But why? This is so important. The son being exposed in the story, are you listening? Isn't the one that ran away. The son that's being exposed in the story is the one that stayed home. And the frightening thing that should be like an alarm clock going off for us church people is that you can actually stay home and not get in. Wake up, religious people, and realize that this is about a relationship with the Father. Not how good you are and how leather-bound your Bible is. You can stay home all your life and never get in. That's the danger of religion. Fourthly, the grace requirement. Both sons thought they had to earn their father's love. They had to earn it. The, The younger son, make me a hired servant. That way maybe I can pay you back. The older son, look at all I've done. Don't you owe me? Listen, listen, you can't earn a father's love. There's nothing you can do to make your heavenly daddy love you more. That's grace. Free grace is a scandal. And praise God for it. Amen? Now the main point. He's just now at the main point. (laughs) But it's the last one. This is the main point of the whole trilogy. A father is rejoicing. It's a trilogy of parables that goes like this, and we'll close. A shepherd loses a sheep, finds his sheep, rejoices. Parable two, a woman loses a coin, seeks after the coin, finds the coin, rejoices. Parable three, a father loses a son, son returns home, rejoices because he was lost and is now 
found. Follow me. What is the question asked in the text? How can Jesus receive sinners? And here's the answer. Because the God of heaven rejoices when the lost is found. The God of heaven rejoices when runaways come home. The God of heaven rejoices when those who've been muddied by sin are cleansed with the kisses of a father. Get it down, faith family. Heaven rejoices not when religious people keep the rules. The God of heaven rejoices when sinners find grace. You want to know why I'm hanging out with these people? You want to know why I'm eating with these people? Because heaven celebrates when grace comes to the sinner. That's the heart of God. That's the joy of heaven because this parade that God is leading has always been and will always be a grace parade. A father who loves sinners and rejoices when they come home so much. So do you know why we know he rejoices in this? Because in order to make it possible, he shamed His own son. As Isaiah 53 verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Friends, there's nothing more shameful than a cross. The good news of the gospel today is that our God, unlike Tevia, was not only willing to bend, he was willing to break. So that in the ages to come, prodigals from every nation and tongue will be gathered And they will declare together, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come. It was grace that brought us safe thus far, and it was grace that led us home. And all God's prodigals said, Amen. Amen. That's the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scandal that is your grace. I pray this morning that we would see our brokenness. Whether we are the older son, whether we are the older son, however we've shamed you, whether it's through our immorality or our morality, it's time to come home. It's time to enter in by receiving the free grace offered in Jesus Christ. May we experience that today. Maybe some here for the very first time that they turn and they trust in Jesus today. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.